Tabernacle of David and the, the central nature of it, um, and this is kind of building off of a couple of weeks ago, um, yeah, but a little different. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would, um, yeah, bring out old things and connect them to new things, and that you would reveal things to us that are in your heart and in the heart of Jesus. Would you do what you love to do, Holy Spirit? Would you reveal Jesus in the word today? I pray that you would reveal the Son of God in your word today, that you would reveal the way that he um, was qualified. I should the Lord saying that. He said, I, I, was, I am well pleased with my son because he did what I wanted him to do. So I pray that we'd see the, the um, yeah, that the, the, son of, the, the Son of God came in the flesh. Lord, would you help us to see that today? That God came in the flesh, full of the Spirit, that you won the victory, Jesus, over the very things that we're facing. You won the victory, and you want to impart that same victory into us. Would you open our hearts right now to receive victory? That's what he's saying. I want you to receive victory this morning. Don't receive condemnation. Receive victory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, what the world needs is a global example of a spirit-led people. It doesn't really need any more examples of non-spirit-led people. So we might be tempted to think what the world needs is a bunch of people talking about Jesus. It doesn't really need a bunch of people talking about Jesus if they're not led by the Spirit. That's more confusion. The world does not need any more bad information about Jesus. Got enough. It needs good information about Jesus. It needs to see an example of Spirit-led people. That is actually the Great Commission. Okay, so people moved by God... So people that are spirit-led, people that let God move them, they humble themselves, they give up their right to go where they want. Remember Peter, when Jesus restored Peter, he said, Peter, do you love me? And he said, feed my sheep. He said, when you were young, you went where you wanted to, but now that you're mine, now that you're filled with my spirit and you're repentant and contrite because you fell away and didn't believe me that you would, go where I want you to. And he took his belt, and, or he, he said, your hands are going to be tied. He didn't take his belt, but he said, your hands are going to be tied, you're going to go where you don't want to go now. How many of us are like signing up to go where we don't want to go? Because that's a basic of the gospel, going where you don't want to go. You know, we live in an American culture that it kind of believes falsely that you can have Jesus and still go where you want to go. You can't. It's impossible. But Jesus will take you where your deepest desires actually want to go. It's just your flesh is warring against you getting satisfied. So if you're willing to humble yourself and yield to the Holy Spirit, you'll go places you didn't want to go, but then you're going to find out when you get there, it's where you wanted to be. Sam and I actually had a, in a very small example of this. We were up north on vacation last week, and one of Sam's relatives said, hey, we're in the same place. You want to go have dinner? And Sam and I were like, well, we don't, not really. <laughs> like, we're hanging out, we're enjoying ourselves, but the Holy Spirit was like, you guys need to go. And so we went, we ended up talking about Jesus the whole night, the house of prayer, like, the thing that we would have never even known to long for. We left feeling so filled up, we're like, I can't believe how great that was, but the place we didn't want to go, God wanted us to go, and when we went there, we found it was better than what we wanted to do. This is, this is really our whole lives are supposed to be this way. We're supposed to be a people that stop trying to guard our comfort, stop trying to manage our life into the good thing we think we're supposed to have, be led by the Holy Spirit to places we don't want to go so that we can actually get a victory. That's what he wanted to give Peter, a victory. Peter already had the failure of going where he wanted to go. So the ultimate expression of this is Jesus is trying to get us into a place we don't like right now. 
This is hard news for the flesh. But the truth is, you don't like heaven right now. If you liked heaven right now, you'd like God telling you what to do, and you really wouldn't try to do anything of your own accord. You wouldn't worry about what you're going to eat tomorrow. You wouldn't worry about what you're going to wear tomorrow. You'd seek first the kingdom with everything. That's what everyone in heaven is doing, what I'm saying right now. And you can do that right now if you want to, but you mostly don't because that means you don't really like heaven all the way yet. And if God gave you a human utopia, what you think you wanted when you were born, this is it. This is man getting what man wants right now, and it's not good. But if, God, if we let God actually move us to places we wouldn't normally go, with an open heart to be told something that we didn't already know, then he'll make us ready for heaven, and we'll find out we really want to be with him forever, with him leading and us doing what he says. That's heaven. Him leading, us doing what he says. And heaven's coming to earth. So God isn't moving the perfect. He's moving the willing into perfection. It's very tempting to think, okay, God's moving the perfect. Those who are doing all the right things, saying all the right things, going all the right places. He's got them. They're his army, and he's going to kind of direct them like a general. That's not what he's doing. He's actually taking the willing, and he's moving them into perfection very clumsily. Like, if you read the Gospels very clumsily, even the epistles, most of the epistles are talking about the disciples and the first apostles changing. Like, if you really read it, they're like, I used to think this, and now I think this because this happened. It's describing people willing to be moved and changed. So you don't need to be doing this perfect. You need to be willing to let him do it through you, kind of what Noah was prophesying. Let us be vessels filled with your love that kind of overflow, kind of pour out, rather than trying to love everybody but full of hardness of heart, full of bad information, not really willing to be moved ourselves, just saying, God, move that person. God, move that person. But we're actually still stuck in our hardness and our selfishness and our myopic kind of self-focused vision. Do you see what I'm saying? That's not a good witness of Jesus. A good witness of Jesus is a spirit-led person. So the worst condition of the believer is to expect the world to be like the church in the ways of godliness. That's actually the worst condition a believer can be in, is to be like looking at people that don't know God at all and being like, you need to obey God. They can't. Because when you start to say that, what you're actually saying is you don't need the Holy Spirit to obey God. And if you start to think you don't need the Holy Spirit to obey God, you're no longer saved. You need the Holy Spirit to obey God. So we have to be a people that are a witness to stop looking at the world, expecting it to act like God, and to start acting like people that expect ourselves to change because we got the Holy Spirit. And if we do that, what happens is we expect God to change our mind. We expect God to show us where we're wrong. We expect God to move us into a place that we didn't want to go, but it's actually what we're hungry for and what we're longing for, and to actually answer a lot of the problems that we have. We just can't, you know, we spin in this hamster wheel year after year. If you're like me, almost 50 years, and there's some things I can't get victory over, and he's like, if you would just go where I want you to, you'd get victory. Do you know this is true, what I'm telling you? This is what it means to be spirit-led. So right now, just in this room, let's just, in our hearts, Tell the Lord, I actually want victory. You know, you know where you don't have victory. I don't even have to tell you. You've been thinking about it all week. God, I want victory. He says, let me move you. Holy Spirit, let us hear you prophetically say that, that you want to lead us is what that means. You want to lead us in Jesus' name. And we need to lower our expectations of the world to change and raise the bar. This is what it means to have faith, to believe the Holy Spirit could actually do something with us, Okay. So if much is given to you, much is required. Item one on the notes. Unity is what Jesus prayed for. Jesus actually prayed that you would be found in a central location. Unity 
isn't just like, hey, we all agree on the same things. If we all agree on the same things and what we want is in one place, we'll all find ourselves in one place. Unity has a lot more to do with being moved by God to a central location and then learning to love the people God loves than it does kind of philosophically agreeing about the, right, the same ideas. That, uh, philosophically agreeing about the same ideas, that's actually Babylon. One language, one speech, let's build something together. That's Babylon. The unity that God's talking about is actually being leadable into a place you wouldn't have picked in your flesh because you can't. You can't even see the kingdom unless you're born again by the Spirit, according to John 3. So unity is actually going somewhere you didn't even know was good to go. And when you get there, finding a bunch of other people there that love God too and let him move them as well. So all the people, the, the stories of faith in the Bible, they're about people that God spoke to and he said, leave all the stuff you know, come to a place you don't know. And I'm going to give you a thing that you actually were made to want. You just don't know how to get it. I want to give it to you. This is what Adam and Eve broke in the Garden of Eden. They broke God trying to, I mean, he made them. He's so good. What, another thing Noah was prophesying and Jen was prophesying is, you wouldn't ask us to run if you didn't want to help us run. Like Adam and Eve, the thing that they wanted that the snake promised, they should have known. God's good. He wouldn't make that desire in my heart if he didn't want to give it to me. And so the desire didn't go away. It's just the method of fulfilling it. That's what got broken. Because when you can't see God, you can't see the answer. So we want to get back to the place where we can see God. And it takes, actually, because he's infinite. This is what I was talking about a couple weeks ago. Because he's infinite in his glory, infinite in his splendor, it takes more than just you to see God. You don't have a capacity to see all of him. But he made us to all see a, as much as we want to of him and to share that in this antiphonal centrality. And so today we're talking about what the antiphony is supposed to get us into this centrality to make that simple. Okay, so Jesus prayed for this, John 17, verse 8, starting in verse 18. He says to the Father, praying, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now, how is Jesus sent into the world? Filled with the Spirit. Jesus was sent into the world filled with a different leadership. And that's the only, that's the, really, he said the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord. He only does what he sees the Father doing. He saw that because of the Holy Spirit. So he's sending us into the world, intending that we would be led by the Spirit only, just as he was sent into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Who is the truth? Jesus in his Spirit, right? I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Was he just talking to his friends in that room that day? No, he was talking to us. That they all may be one, central. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. This is actually the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not printing up Bible tracts. It's not making a plan to reach every country in Africa. The Great Commission is not going and telling people about Jesus. The Great Commission is being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, living as a witness so that the world could know that Jesus was sent by the Father. Because the only way somebody can actually change for real without just putting on a thin face that breaks under pressure is to be, have a heart change in the leadership paradigm. To actually go somewhere that a human being doesn't want to go. What are some of the places a human being doesn't want to go, according to the Sermon on the Mount? Generosity. Some of the places a human being doesn't want to go is secret fasting and secret prayer. We, I mean, you know this. If you fasted or prayed, you want to be seen. Like, it's a human thing. It's not a, like, bad personality thing. So, you know, we get split hairs here. All the things that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount, these are places a human being doesn't want to go. 
poverty of spirit. A human being wants to cover our lack. We don't want to cry out and admit that we have lack. We actually want to act like we're not that bad. Mourning, mourning. Like people don't naturally want to mourn. We want the good times. We want the comfort. We want, he's trying to take us to a place we don't want to go so that we can be a witness that he was actually sent by the Father. That's the Great Commission. It's nothing less than that. You can't fulfill the Great Commission apart from you being commissioned greatly. That they all may be one as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Father, I desire, what does Jesus want? This, that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Where is Jesus right now? The right hand of the Father. He's waiting until his enemies are made a footstool under his feet. If you want to be with him where he is, you're sitting at his feet. You're actually reaching as far into that place as you can, though you can't make yourself go in. In fact, you can't go in. It takes the escort of the Holy Spirit to go in this new and living way, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. And he says, do this even more so as you see the day approaching it. Hebrews 10. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. When did John the Beloved see the most of Jesus' glory, according to the Bible? Where was he at when he saw the most of Jesus' glory? When he fell down like a dead man. He was on an island, Patmos. He was in the spirit. So if you want to know by the Bible how to know, how to do what Jesus prayed for, you get in the spirit. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, take some time. Get into this central location in your heart, in your mind's eye. Go to this throne room where I said to John, come up here. Let me show you my glory in a way that changes what you say and what you do, what you believe. The way that I'm able to change you is to show you my glory. How do we know that? For sure, 2 Corinthians 3.18, they behold and become unveiled. Right? When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Beholding and becoming. If you want to get clean, you get clean by looking at Jesus' cleanliness. That's the point. So this is all describing a central location. Okay? Now, Jesus is faithful. That means he's still praying for this thing because this hasn't happened yet. This hasn't happened to everyone who believed because of those guys, right? This prayer. He's still praying it. Are we praying it? Is this our main focus, that Jesus would get the reward of his suffering? Or do we look at church and the reality of the house of prayer and being saved as a means to an end for us? I want to, get, I want to be a better person. I want to get holy. I want to see the kingdom come. I want to see the outpouring of the Spirit. I want to see these things that I thought were going to happen happen. Or is it just none of that matters? It matters that you get a pure and spotless sacrifice from me. A pure and spotless sacrifice from me. That's what the pure and spotless is. It's about a sacrifice, a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. You're supposed to follow him in that. Now, he's not asking you to do something he didn't do. He is the perfect sacrifice. But he says, come follow me. Take up your cross and follow me, right? This is, what we're, this is supposed to be the goal of every believer. This is Christianity 101. This is the redemptive plan, actually, what he's praying for. And I'll lay it out like this. Receiving the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, you cannot be saved. The Spirit opening the word to you. Worshiping in spirit and truth changing us. The heart change that the Spirit imparts to us changing us. It separates us from the world in its broken thinking, feeling, and will. 
That's the only way it works. You have to come out of the world. You cannot stay in the world and go with Jesus. You cannot. And then that being the Great Commission, defining this gospel, that being the Great Commission, or the witness to the world. And he says, it's going to begin in Jerusalem and go to the ends of the earth. And then we find out that what that will do is it will provoke a jealousy right in the very place it started in Israel, in Jerusalem. That's a, a Zechariah 12. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You know, you got to be immersed in all three. The leadership of the Father, the payment of the blood of the Son, and the Holy Spirit leading you. you got to be in all three. got to get immersed in all of them, baptized in all of them, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, I am, he's told his disciples, it's better that I go away from you than I can send the helper. You actually need the helper. Do you know Jesus, he had to leave his disciples to, to get them saved. They had to get the Holy Spirit just like him and then follow him. That's, that was the deal. Then he tested them in that, right? Luke 24, 48, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem. Now, had the, had the Spirit been breathed on them at this point? Yes. Had they been baptized in the Spirit? No, that's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for an immersion, not, you know, it's easy to take 21st century church theology and be like, they were waiting for like Toronto to happen. That's not what they were waiting for. They were waiting to get baptized in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. They were waiting to get the personality of Jesus to wash away all their self-leadership, as much as they could take in that one time. And they got many of these baptisms. They kept getting a need to be baptized in the Spirit. That's why there were several of them. We have a need to be baptized in the Spirit many times, many times, as many as we can get. Now, what exactly did Jesus teach? Oh, Luke 24, 48, your witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Because there is no gospel without this light shining. There's no gospel without this sanctification, this witness, without this reality of power to be led. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not power to convince somebody to go follow Jesus. It's a witness that you got changed and you're following him now. You're doing things that don't make sense to the flesh. You can't, that's a, a formula, though. You can easily take that statement and be like, okay, I'm just going to do the opposite of what I think is right. That's not what I'm talking about. Now, what exactly did Jesus teach and command? Because this is what he just told them in, in uh, that Matthew passage. Teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. What are the disciples to tarry for? What are the first fruits, as Paul called them? He said that in Romans 8. He called it the first fruits, what they got there. What was it? Well, it was loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. It was actually a central location. That's actually what he's talking about, is get led. Get led by the Holy Spirit into the Father's presence, and then you'll love the other people that are there. That's actually what he's talking about. And not just the other people that are there, but your neighbor. And they would say, who's my neighbor? And he would say, it's bigger than you think. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. These are his two great commandments. So when you see in Matthew 28, he's saying, the thing I want you to teach is not all of the theology of, you know, the 
end time stuff or all the theology of how to win a city or all the theology of, you know, this, I'm a Calvinist or I'm a, you know, whatever. He's saying, I actually want you to teach the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. But it takes God to love God. And if you try to love God, you find that out quick. And he says, the second commandment is to be a person that loves the people around you. Be a person that loves them like I do, like Jesus does. Are we people that love the people around us like Jesus? Yes, somewhat. Are we people that love the people around us all the way like Jesus? Not yet. So we're in between who we were and who we're going to be. What's that sound like? That's like in the birth canal, like born again, right? I'm not who I was, but I'm not who I'm going to be. I'm somewhere in between. I'm being sanctified is what that means. That's right. Sanctification. Thank you, sir. So this is the problem, though. The flesh of believers believes this statement, but doesn't agree with Jesus about how to get there. And everybody starts in the flesh. I've never met a person that was like, okay, I get it. And then they started to just let the Lord change them miraculously and drastically without actually having to do the heart work of the wrestle of, oh, I'm actually trying to lead myself in this area and I didn't realize it. The reason that this happens is because what Jeremiah said is your heart is slippery. Your mind, will, and emotions, they are trying to trick you. Whether you believe that or not, Jeremiah said it was true. Galatians 5 says it's true. Your flesh is fighting against the Holy Spirit. And if you don't know where and how, then you got a problem. You actually need to find out the next thing that Jesus wants you wrestling with to get victory over. And it might be multiple things at one point in time. So the flesh of the believer believes this statement, this Matthew 22. Yeah, these are the two great commandments. Our flesh also doesn't want to die to itself to receive it. That's a problem. Because you can start to couch, I believe that's true, even though you never change. And he says, if you don't bear fruit, you're actually not part of my kingdom. You have to bear the fruit of believing this. You actually have to, at the mind, will, and emotional level, change the way that you lead your life to let me lead it, and you're going to come out limping like Jacob when he wrestled with God and got a new identity. It's actually going to leave you a little bit weaker. It's supposed to, maybe a lot weaker, dead. The flesh wants unity without death to self. How did Jesus get unity? Death to self all the way all the way to a cross. He's going to get it. He's going to get it. Joy was set before him. Unity was set before him in this. The Spirit's leadership. The flesh wants unity without the Spirit's leadership. It just wants to kind of, let's find some things we agree about, get united about it. Let's ignore the minor things. There are no minor things of Jesus' reality, his personality, his glory. There's no minor part of Jesus' glory. There's no minor part of this word. There's no, okay, it's okay to disagree about who Jesus is in this area. It's Jesus. You can't, there's no minor stuff. It's just, do we have the humility to realize he's asking us for something that only he can do? Do we have the humility to realize that? The flesh wants to consider, uh, it wants this unity without considering others better, better than itself. And if you've ever been in a large citywide meeting or a large nationwide meeting, it doesn't take but about 10 minutes to realize a lot of the people that are there, including you, are there for selfish reasons. There's all kinds of self that happens when you get a large group of people all wanting the same thing together. And so he's like, you have to actually be in this group and learn how to die to your selfish ambition in the middle of a bunch of other people wrangling in selfish ambition. That's difficult. What I'm describing is very difficult. It'd take a miracle. But all the people you read about in here, they learned it. Some of them learned it the hard way. We have to be a people that are like, I am actually coming here to find out how to live with other people that are 
wrestling through selfish ambition just like I am and learning to want to wait on God to do all the things that are in my heart to want. Does that make sense? This will change you. It already has. I know you. It's changing you. So the whole world wants unity. Do you know that? Can you tell by watching the news the whole world wants unity? That's why the Tower of Babel happened. That's actually why uh, Adam and Eve rebelled against God with Satan. They wanted unity with God. They want to be like God. They just don't want to wait for it. They wanted to take that fruit, eat it, and get cut to the chase. Be as God. Even though God made them to be in a relationship of receiving from him for all of eternity to be satisfied. Were Adam and Eve more satisfied after they ate the fruit? No. And neither will you be. If you try to cut the corner and just get to the thing, you won't be satisfied. Ask anybody. Yeah. I mean, there's so many ways we can get success and find ourselves completely unsatisfied. So many ways. So the flesh wants unity by the will of man. This is clearly fruitless. Just look outside. Wanting unity by the will of man is fruitless. It doesn't work. All of the COVID restrictions, all of the COVID sentimentality, did it work? Did it make more love? Did, did the people that said yes to loving others, wearing the mask, doing the thing, whatever it was that the group wanted them to do, did they get more loving? No, you can't. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But most of the church didn't get more loving either. Most of the church still wanted their own things that they thought Jesus was stamping approved and didn't grow in love through the last four or five years. We have to be a people that are gauging ourselves on the production of fruit, not our producing fruit, not our gritting out our teeth and producing fruit, but what God is changing in us in the way of humility and patience and love and joy and peace. You see what I'm saying? So the bride wants unity by being broken in our will and letting the will of God move us. This is clearly fruitful. And I think most of us have experienced some fruitful change, some fruitful change in the way of, I do have actually a little bit more peace over anxiety. I, I ha- I'm at least seeing I need more patience. I'm at least recognizing I am a controlling person, and I'm crying out about it. That's fruit. Like, it's not the perfect that he's got gathered together. It's those that are willing to move, and he's like, I will perfect you. And it starts with poverty of spirit. It starts at that beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and mourning it. And I just think... That's a clear thing that's happening in this group of people. We are seeing our poverty, and we're mostly mourning it. Now, we're still in this wrestle between who we were born as, the way God found us, and who God says we can be, which is called glorification. We must let God win the wrestle and give us a new name. That's the wrestle of Jacob. So Psalm 24 is really what I'm referring to. Psalm 24 says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. This is the generation of Jacob, and then what happens? The ancient gates open, and the king of glory comes in. He's actually, we're we're near the return of Jesus, so near. This message is going out all over the earth. The one that I'm proclaiming to you right now, it's going, I mean, have you noticed the way that repentance has been being preached in the last two years? It's amazing. There's a huge part of the body of Christ preaching repentance right now. Now, that means there's a huge part of the body of Christ missing repentance right now, even though we're preaching it. And then what comes next is learning the lessons, and then comes maturity. So you don't want to get frustrated. Hey, you're preaching repentance, but you're not repenting. I get frustrated about that. And God's like, Tom, you're preaching repentance and not repenting. Oh, I'm repenting a little more. He's like, so are they. (laughs) You know, so we just have to be a people that are like, okay, move me. Keep moving me. Don't stop moving me. So we got to let God win this wrestle and give us a new name. And how did Jacob win that? let God win the wrestle? He wanted to know God's name. He just, tell me your name. I'm not letting go to you. Tell me your name. That's, 
That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be not letting go, even though we're losing, and God's so much, you know, stronger than we are, and it hurts, and, you know, I got a rock for a pillow, and, uh. He says, don't stop wanting to know who I am. Don't stop. I'm talking about a central location. He's in one place. He's on a throne. The Son of Man is right next to him at the right hand of the Father, waiting until his enemies are a footstool under his feet. And Hebrews tells us we can go, we can boldly go before him in this new and living way, sprinkled in the blood, not giving up the habit of meaning, stirring up each other in love and good works, even more so until we, as the day approaches. And if we don't, it's willful sin. It's willful sin to know where to go and not go there. It's willful sin. God is restoring an awareness of his majesty. That's what's happening right now on the earth. He's, re- he's producing the exact perfect conditions to reveal the majesty of his son right now. Can you see it? Can you feel it? I'm kind of hungry to see the majesty of Jesus on the planet. Are you kind of hungry to see some light? Yeah, that's what darkness does. It, like, makes you, where is the light? He's, he's producing the exact perfect conditions to reveal the majesty of Jesus. Look at our new sets. Amen. Amen. And this is what he's praying for in John 17 right? He's saying, I don't don't want you to take them out of the world. I want you to sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. I sanctified myself that they would be sanctified. Was Jesus light in the darkness? Yes. He was so much, 500 years of no words from the Lord, according to the, you know, the, the separation between the Old Testament and the New Testament, waiting for the promise of the spirit of Elijah. And John the Baptist, he leads the way by saying, I'm not worthy to hold his sandals. I'm nothing compared to the glory of this man. And what's he going to do? He's going to thoroughly clean his threshing floor. He's going he's gonna to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus came as a light in the darkness. He was totally different than every other religious leader in Israel in his time. He was also totally different than every other kind of person he encountered. He was salt and he was light, and some people wanted the light, and they followed him even to the death. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be light. He's, he prayed it. He's like, I want them in the world just as I am in the world, that the world may believe that you sent me. Not because they got a good plan and went and told a bunch of people something they didn't actually believe wasn't actually changing them. No, they were witnesses being changed under pressure, under pressure. So what the world needs is a global example of spirit-led people. It has plenty of examples of self-willed centrality or unity. It requires yielding into one. You can't work your way into unity. That's Babylon. You yield your way into unity. You can't Preach your way into unity. You can't teach your way into unity. You yield your way into unity. What's 1 Corinthians 13 says? It says, I could give my money away. I could give my body to be burned, but without love, it profits me nothing. Where's love come from? You only love because God first loved you. You yield your way into unity. Self-will is the main enemy the redemptive plan addresses. What I mean is self-will is what this book is talking about. It's talking about the death of your self-will. Clearly. I mean, this is not some weird theology. This is what it's talking about. The main enemy that this is addressing is not Satan, and it's not unbelievers. It's you. It's self-will. Listen, Matthew 16, 24 to 25, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him break every generational curse. Let him find the exact right prayer to cast out the enemies from around. No, that's not what it says. Listen, this is what it says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's self-will. That, I mean, just look. That's what broke everything. Self-will. That's what he's fixing. Self-will. The Pharisees believed, studied, taught the Scripture. They just didn't actually go in. They didn't go to the central location. They complained to other people who weren't going in. They taught ad nauseum everyone else how to go in. Jesus said, do what they say. Just don't do what they do. They just wouldn't go in. Is that our main goal, to go in? Or is it to get our kids to go in, get our neighbors to go in, our in-laws to go in? God, if you would just make this person go in. And he's like, why don't you just come in? It wouldn't bother you nearly as much if you came in. The central location God is preparing for us is heaven, which is coming to earth. Going in means you become what you behold, right? That's how you know you're in, like you're changing. This offends what's out. You go in, there's trouble outside. That's a cross. That that will happen literally every time. You start to change to be more like the government that's coming and overtaking the flesh. You will be disruptive to the flesh. You'll be a problem for some flesh somewhere that also wants God but doesn't want to die to self. That's what happened to Jesus. And if you want to follow him, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be some trouble to some believers that don't want to die to the flesh. You, You talk, they're on edge. I disagree with that. My, uh, my belief is flimsy enough that now I feel unsettled. i got to do something about you. You see what I'm saying? In is seen as exclusive, inactive. Jesus calls this inactivity, the spirit-led inactivity, meekness. But those that are out, when they look at those that are in, they see inactivity and they don't interpret it as meekness. They interpret it as dis- an unwillingness to be helpful. You know, that's what Martha's interpretation was of Mary's meekness. Wasteful, divisive. So going in and actually learning the leadership of Jesus, it's trouble to out. And it's seen as exclusive, inactive, wasteful, and divisive, but it's not. It's wholehearted love. It's meekness. It's actually a different value system than the earth has. It sees value in pouring out the perfume rather than selling it and using it to do something. You see what I'm saying? Genesis 4, 3 to 9. Okay, I want to say this. Offense between in and out is breaking up the church right now. This offense between living in and living out, it's literally threshing the church, and the church is being winnowed as it's being threshed. It's, it's what Jesus promised to do. He said he's got his winnowing, hand, winnowing fork in his hand. He's going to thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He's just trying to find who are the people that want to actually be broken in their self-will, okay, and then receive something. You can't just be broken. You can't just be dejected because you don't do anything right. That's not what being broken in your self-will is. It's actually believing God wants to give you a better leadership than you're giving up. So offense between in and out is breaking up the church. Only those who overcome offense. Now listen, this is very important. Not by isolating and self-building an offering to God. It's very easy to be in church, get offended, walk away because you don't like that threshing, and then build something for God by yourself thinking you're pleasing him. He's pleased by the central location. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't move people. He does move people. But that means that when we are moved by him, we're moving with an eye towards, I got to change. I actually got to be a person that becomes more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more gentle, more self-controlled. If that's you, 
then you're actually being moved into this central location. But if you're like, I don't like how everybody's not kind, not gentle, not self-controlled, so I'm going to go over here and build an offering to God. I'm not giving up on God. I'm just done with these fakers, right? He's not taking the perfect and gathering together. He's taking the willing and perfecting them. That means you can't look around you and be like, you're not perfect. I'm walking away. It actually means we have to be, of course you're not perfect. That's why we're here. We're here not because we're perfect, because we need the perfect one to change us, okay? Genesis 4, 3 to 9. This is what self-building and offering to God does. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. You see, salvation is about leadership. It wasn't about Cain being perfect. It was about Cain wanting to be led. Abel wanted to be led. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but, that you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is what Hebrews 10 is actually talking about. If you found this new and living way and you want to go boldly before the throne, then what you're going to find is that you care about others being stirred up in love and good works to the very same thing. You can't believe these things and believe that you can do God on your own. You cannot. If you believe in Jesus and you believe in his leadership, then you are actually thirsty and hungry for others to see a witness of this and you're understanding, just like Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. You're actually following Jesus into a cross. That's what he said. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You're actually unwilling, even though it would be much easier on your flesh to separate. You're unwilling to because it's not easy on your spirit. In fact, it's sin trying to lure you away from the humility Jesus is trying to teach us. Okay? So it's actually we have to work our junk out is what that means. We actually have to be a people with an eye towards I got to figure out how to be your best friend in heaven because that's what's going to happen. I'm best friends with Jesus. You're best friends with Jesus. We're going to be living together forever. He's praying that we're one. So even though we don't get along right now and I can't make you agree with me, to the best, to as much as it's on me, I'm going to live at peace with you. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what the Bible says. As much as it depends on you, live in peace with those around you. And that's, that's a bleeding, open wound. I want to tell you, that hurts. That actually will drive you more to Jesus. That's what he wants. He wants us close to him. Fellowship in his suffering is what Paul was praying for. Did Paul suffer the things that I'm describing? Yeah, more, yes. And he said, I want the fellowship of this man's suffering. I don't want to be an expert about God. I want to follow Jesus. I was already considered an expert about God. That didn't work. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a fellow of his suffering. So we're in a time of global shaking right now, sifting. The church is doing this right now, getting ready to kill its, its brothers, annoyed that everybody doesn't see the sacrifice and offering the same way. Can you hear this in the church right now? Some people see a certain thing that they think God ought to be doing and that we ought to be doing. Others see a different thing that they think God's doing and that we ought to be doing. And the truth is, we have to be a people that understand that has always been prophesied to happen, that we're going to be offered up to tribulation, offense would increase, betrayal the love of many would grow cold. 
but we're supposed to endure. This is I'm, what I'm describing about the central location is the place to endure. It's the safe place. It's like, okay, I'm sitting at your feet. Yes, your enemies are being made. A, now, just imagine this analogy. If you're sitting at Jesus' feet and his enemies are being made a footstool, that means his enemies are being brought and laid at his feet. Where are there a lot of enemies sitting at his feet? As people bring their selfishness and their greed and their apostasy, and it, it means you're going to be in the place where all that's kind of being uncovered and stepped on and crushed and driven out. But we look at it, we're like, I'm not going where all that apostasy is. I'm not going where all that is. I'm not going where that. Now, I'm not talking about sitting under bad leadership that preaches untrue things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having a heart to be led by the Holy Spirit into places you wouldn't want to go and to stay places where the Holy Spirit wants you even though you don't want to be there. You see what I'm saying? This is about being broken in our self-will. The sifting or shaking is intended to bring the willing or leadable to the place of his majesty. Now, those unwilling to be brought in will be cast out, clearly, according to the Bible. Those unwilling to be brought into this place will be cast out. That's called Babylon. What God did with Babylon was he confused the language and scattered them. It's confusion. Babylon means confusion. Haggai 2, 6-9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake the heaven and have it shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall, do you think all nations are shaking right now? Is this the shaking he's talking about? It doesn't matter. It's enough shaking that we should be responding. We should be responding to the global shaking of the nations. I don't think Jesus is going to buy it. you would be like, I didn't think this was the one because I had these four points I was looking for to happen. And when they don't happen, I'm not believing that's it. I think the Pharisees would try to make that argument. He'd be like, I'm the Messiah. You killed me. So, I will shake all nations. They shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. He's trying to get people into the place of peace by the shaking. Going in is the answer. Okay. God wants to lift fear, anxiety, and confusion off of us. When we find his majesty, we find his peace. That means when we find someone greater than us, we find peace. It's very easy to come into the presence of God if you can't see God and consider yourself the greatest knower of what's right and what's wrong. You ever had that experience? I bet you have. But when we find majesty, we find peace. When it's no longer on you, to be the spiritual police of all that's happening, and instead it's on you to let God change you, then you'll find that you're a witness actually of the truth in a way much more powerful than you trying to make all the wrong things right. When you're a witness of being led by God, he does things in a way you wouldn't, you don't even worry about what you're going to say, and he puts you in the right place at the right time. It says something through you that no one can refute, and they say, he must know Jesus. He must be with God, right? That's what they said to the disciples. How do they learn all this stuff? They must know Jesus. But the arrogance of our, of our heart and the fear, it's mostly fear. Fear of cooperating with something evil, fear of doing the wrong thing. And we don't realize that the enemy comes as an angel of light. He's just trying to get us afraid. But there's only one thing to fear, the fear of the Lord. The fear not actually letting God change us. None of those disciples that wrote the New Testament, they, none of them were afraid of being in the wrong group. I mean, Paul literally is preaching. They start calling Paul a God. He's like, no, I'm not a God. Then they, they want to kill him. Like, that was a pretty bad group. But he was where God put him. Do you see what I'm saying? We have to be a people that, want to, that are willing to go wherever God's leading us. 
And he's leading us all, and Paul would say the same thing, to a central location, to a central reality. Now, you can do what I'm saying in the flesh. You'd be like, okay, I think what Tom is saying is I try, should try to make every meeting at Light Hop, and I should go to church, and no matter what happens, I got to go to a church. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you got to be led by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's leading people to this Hebrews 10 reality, not giving up the habit of meeting together, even more so as we see the day approaching, stirring up each other to love and good works. You have to be a person that is like, that is true no matter what. There is no out for that. There is no out for that. But I am not saying show up to every meeting that Light Hop has, and you got to go to church somewhere, and it's got to have a steeple, and you know, it's got to say Jesus on the outside. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying you have to find what God is saying to you about not giving up the habit of meeting together in a way that crushes your self-will. And if you're only around you, or if you're the leader of everybody else, it's easy to not get your self-will crushed. It's easy to just assert yourself as the top thing so that any underlings are willing to come near you but not bother you in what you believe. That won't help you. You actually have to be like Jesus. Jesus let Pharisees tell him about the Bible. Ah! I mean, really? Could, I mean, who could endure that for more than like five? I'd be like, I made you. Are you kidding me? I saw your mom change your diaper. I gave her the hands to do it. But he let Pharisees tell him about God. Are we willing to be broken in our self-will? If we would be, I want to tell you, this place would shine. It's going to. What I'm telling you, I'm prophesying. It's going to happen. It's going to shine. And our kids are going to see a light. The kids of this city, do you know that the murder rate in Kalamazoo is increasing exponentially? The shooting rate, it's, I mean, it's unbelievable. This city needs a witness of being led by Jesus. It doesn't need to hear more about Jesus from people that are unled. This room doesn't need a bunch of people to come and be unled in it. It needs people to come willing to be led. Even if we just sat here. Something happened in worship that nobody made happen. Did you feel it? Something happened. And nobody made that happen. It wasn't anyone's agenda for that to happen. That's just a, like a drop. One little tiny teardrop, you know, or whatever. Small. God wants to do something we didn't even know he wanted to do. And he wants to save our families in a way we didn't even know he could save them. He wants to redeem the city in a way we would never. It's, it's like he's got this path that we don't even know how to get to it. But he says, if you will let me move you to places you don't want to go, I will put you on it. But if you just keep telling me what the path is and how you're staying on it while you're walking through the woods and crashing into trees and not really going where I want you to, then where are you leading everyone else? How is this city ever going to see a light that way? How would it happen? Sorry, I got excited for a second. Now, the only way into his majesty is to let him take you out of the world in its way of doing things, to be brought to a consecrated place. You can't just go there. You can't be like, okay, that's the good one. I'm going to go drive across town and go there because that's the good one. That won't help you. The Holy Spirit has to take you there because it's not just your physical location. It's the way you carry your thought life. It's the way you carry your emotions. It's what you want to do when you get there. Now, I did not learn this in a book. I learned this by going to a bunch of great places and coming with a lot of selfish ambition and not really understanding any of these things and kind of making some messes and actually having people make messes for me. But over time, what I see is none of that matters. If I'm willing to be changed by God, it doesn't, I don't need him to keep a record of wrongs on that. I just want him to change me. I just want him to change me. 
Do you want him to change you? Do you want him to change you? 1 Corinthians 15 to 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Can't. Unless God does something miraculous, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. This is actually why we're here right now. This is why we're here. We've been brought to a consecrated place. It's consecrated because God picked it. It's not consecrated because we came here. He knew about this before we did. He knew about it before Jen did. Jen is the first person I know of to supernaturally know about this place. And he knew it before you. And he had it already. He consecrated it, not us. Even if we hadn't found it and we hadn't come, God still chose it for this purpose. When we, when we come to this place, and I'm not just talking about you drive across town and park in the parking lot, walk in the building. When we come here in our mind, we walk in this door and we're like, my thinking has got to change. We come here with our emotions. I'm feeling down, downcast, mad, sad. God's saying, why are you mad, sad, and downcast? Soul, hope in God. I'm coming here to get my emotions changed. I'm coming here thinking, God ought to do something about the roundabout. I'm actually coming here to get my will changed. That's kind of a joke, but I do think that sometimes. <laughs> and when we come to the place that God set aside, we get what he set it aside for. You can come to the place not actually coming in. That's what he told the Pharisees. You guys, you got the seat of Moses. You got all the titles, all the roles. You wear the robes. You like the, the best seats in the synagogue. You're going to all the places. You're just not going to the place. You're not going in. You can come here and not go in. It actually makes it way worse. It corrupts it. You're not going to mess it up. Don't, don't hear this the wrong way. You're not breaking it. It's just we could come and become pure and spotless. We could come in, right? Get washed in the blood. You heard about that? All human relationship with God is based on him taking us to places that we didn't see the value of or even know about in faith and then him showing us the wisdom of it. All human relationship with God. Otherwise, if you know more than God about where you should go, that means you're God, and you're not God. So all human relationship with God is actually him taking you places you didn't know to go and then giving you something that is better than you thought you were giving up, okay? Hebrews 11, 6 to 9. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, preparing an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Now listen to that. He's called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. That was his, and he might be like, but my inheritance is with my dad. And God's like, no, I have an inheritance that you don't know about. And you might be like, well, my inheritance is this role. I've been waiting for this role. Or my inheritance is this honor. I've been waiting for this honor. Or my inheritance is this money. Or I earned it. Or this right. Or what, it could be a, a billion things. But your inheritance is actually found in a place you don't know about. Maybe you know a little bit about but he wants to tell you all about it, and he wants to give it to you. And this is what Abraham did. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. This isn't my crazy theology. This is what the Bible says. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise. What does that mean, by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise? I want you to think about this room. Did Abraham go to Canaan before Canaan was the land of promise? No, it was always the land of promise. Did it feel like it to Abraham? No. This is the land of promise. Does it feel like to you? Might not. 
But this is the land of promise. You should dwell by faith in the land of promise. And this is, I mean, I'm not talking about, this is so temporary. This is a tent. This is, the wind should blow it away at some point in time. We're going to find ourselves in the place of promise, right? Jerusalem, in the new Jerusalem coming down. But this is the place God's given us. Hopefully he's given you for right now to touch the place of his feet. And so when you dwell here, it's easy to dwell and be like, this isn't the land of promise. This is a waste of time. Abraham could have easily said that about Canaan, right? But this is what God says it is. Did you ever believe the prophecy that God changed his mind? Did God ever supernaturally confirm any of the prophecies about what he wants to do here for you? Did God change his mind? No. But you're here to be broken in your self-will. You're here to be broken into believing the promise. That's what happened to Abraham. According to Hebrews, Abraham was dead to the promise when it was fulfilled. Because he was dead trying to make it happen. He was just, it is. It is, it is, it is. I heard uh, uh, Paris Reed had preached this sermon once. I listened to it probably every, every six months or so. And he said, Abraham was going everywhere, a little bassinet rocking on the top of the camel. Everywhere Abraham went, the bassinet was rocking. It's empty. Everyone's like, why is Abraham carrying a bassinet? And he's like, because he knew there was going to be a kid in that someday. Are we dead to the promise but believing it? Are we a people that are like, I'm going to the central location, not because of what it's like now, because I believe the promise. I believe the prophecy. I used to believe it before I saw all the pain in it, (laughs) all the monotony of it, all the faith in it. And now that I see the faith in it, I'm not so sure. Well, the faith is what he's extracting. Now, don't feel condemned in that. The faith is what he's extracting out. That's good. It's good that you're coming to the realization, I don't, I don't know if I got faith for this thing. He's like, right, you don't. I'll give it to you, though. I will give it to you. Tell me you want to see the land of the promise. I believe. Unless I believe I'd see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, I would have lost heart. you got to see the goodness of the Lord. you got to see the goodness of the Lord in your marriage. you got to see the goodness of the Lord in your raising your kids. you got to see the goodness of the Lord at work. you got to see the goodness of the Lord in this city. you got to see the goodness of the Lord in your relationships in this church. you got to see. you got to believe it. He doesn't leave people like you hanging, ever. Not one person in this Bible found that waiting on the Lord was a bad idea. Not one. Many people walk away from him, and they find that is the worst idea ever. That's how Satan tempted Adam and Eve to break everything. Walk away from the promise. Take it yourself. You see what I'm saying? A couple more minutes. The church began this way the way that it describes it here in Hebrews. And it will end this way. God doesn't change. The disciples were told to go to a consecrated place to wait for power to obey. I am imagining day nine stunk. You know, 10 days in the upper room. I'm imagining by day nine, somebody was like, could anybody go get some hiss up and rub it on that guy? <laughs> like something to make him smell better. I'm literally, I literally think it probably stunk, like just 10 days. Ugh. And obviously they came and go. But their, their purpose was to be there. The disciples were told to go to a consecrated place and wait for power to obey. Jesus doesn't need us. He wants to give us life by putting us back under God. He doesn't need us to be consecrated. It doesn't really help him. We do. We need to be consecrated. We need to be broken in our pride, broken in our self-will, taught how to dwell together without all the selfish ambition and all of our reasons for doing it and get his reasons for doing it. His reasons. They're different than ours. 
Read 1 Corinthians 12 to 15, and you'll see a progression. Holy Spirit power. 1 Corinthians 12, that's the, you know, the body, the Spirit's given for the benefit of all. Holy Spirit power and leadership. That's the outpouring. That power turned towards love and not self. You can see this actually, the same progression in Acts 2 through 5. When they, got the, when they got the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they started to have all things in common. They shared all their stuff. They ate together. They dwelt together. It doesn't record them doing that before, even though they were in the upper room. It doesn't record the miraculous nature of them dwelling together in the upper room. It records the miraculous nature of them dwelling together after the outpouring of the Spirit. Why? Well, part of it is they had a bunch of power, and they stayed together. Do you know getting a bunch of power will actually usually break you apart? Just look at all the revival movements in America in the last 50 years. Getting something from the Lord is a temptation to use it. They did. You know, Acts 2 through 5 describes the story of a people, meek, even though they're filled with power, meek. That power turned towards love and not self, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians 13, right? That's the better way that Paul describes in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Love ordering a very practical meeting, Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians describes, like, the practicalities of doing meetings. He's not, like, changing subjects. Outpouring of the Spirit, love's the better way. Oh, yeah, there's meetings. No, the outpouring of the Spirit is for the benefit of all. Don't get caught up in selfish ambition. Learn love. It doesn't parade itself. It doesn't demand its own way. It keeps no records of wrong, right? And then this love will manifest in a certain way in meetings. That's where the Corinthians had got really messed up. They got the outpouring of the Spirit, and they were breaking up in division and selfishness and sexual sin and all kinds of crazy stuff because they didn't get the centrality of it, the order of it. The order of God is for our benefit. He's not suffering from our rebellion. He's not suffering from our disorder. We are. So Jesus is going to take that offering of ordered fellowship Spirit-led, ordered fellowship and meek people. And he says, you know, two or three prophesy. If one starts speaking after the other starts speaking, the first one should be quiet and listen. If you've got a tongue to release, you start to release the tongue and there's not an interpreter, just pray it to yourself. Order. I'm looking for order in the meeting. Yes, I understand you got power. I gave it to you. I don't need you to tell me you got power. I know you do. I got it. I gave it to you. I don't need you to come up and explain to me all the things I just prophesied to you. I know them. I told them to you. I want you to carry them, that fire inside, and let it change you. And I want it to be a witness that it's possible. You see what I'm saying? Now, Jesus is going to take that ordered, spirit-led, humble people and offer them to his Father. I just think this is so beautiful, that the Son of Man, the perfect, spotless Lamb, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is going to offer us to his Father. He is perfect. And he satisfied all the requirements for us. He's just pleased with us, you know. He wants his dad to see his spouse. So the kingdom manifesting and resurrected people sanctified and offered to God. That's chapter, the end of chapter 15. So 1 Corinthians 12 through 15 is actually laying out the theology of what I'm describing. Most believers to have ever lived will have wasted their entire lives seeing Jesus as a means to an end. Instead of seeing that he's worthy of a sacrifice. Stability now, saving the old man. Jesus is the way I get a better life. I'm a better parent, better comfort. He's going to give me more resources. He's going to help me with my bad financial decisions. That, none of that is the point. Those, those things happen because of his great leadership. But the point is not yourself being saved now. The point is yourself dying as an offering unto his leadership. So most believers that have ever lived will have wasted their lives seeing Jesus as a means to an end rather than seeing themselves as an offering to him. And that's not just my theology. That's what he says. 
many will say to me in that day. He says, the road is narrow. Few find it. The, the road to hell is wide. Many will find it. That word many translated in the New Testament chapter Matthew, or in the book of Matthew, it actually means most. He's worthy of a sacrificed people, if you want that. You can come up, please. I just really think that he wants to give us a vision of the land of promise, where you're at right now. You didn't get yourself to this place. You got here by obeying God. Some of it was you corrupting what God was saying. Some of it was you not listening. But his hand has been on your life. He's taking you to the land of promise. You got to see it that way. That's called faith. That's called hope. That's called love. If you want that, let's stand together. We're just going to ask him to give us a vision of the land of promise, similar to what he gave Abraham before Abraham knew where he was going. Holy Spirit in this room, we need vision. Just tell him, I need vision, God. I got to see the hope around me right now. I got to see the way you're working, not the way you're not working. God, I got to see how I believe these prophetic promises so readily. And then when it required faith, I seem to be stumbling. Holy Spirit, in this room, show us the glory of Jesus. Put it in us, God, the glory that you gave to Jesus. It says, the glory you gave me, I give it to them. Help us to receive the glory, God. This is where we're reasoning ourselves out of how this is working, where we're just talking ourselves out of faith, God. Put a guard on our lips. Free us from sinful speech. Open our eyes, God, to the glory of Jesus. I pray for records of wrong to be canceled right now. Just whatever record of wrong you're carrying, just cancel it. You, <laughs> I heard this in the song, but I'm going to say it. You do not have enough strength to manage your pain from yesterday. You don't have enough strength. Give it to God. Holy Spirit, cancel records of wrong right now. Fill this room with love. As we let go, take us up, God. Take us up. Give us vision. Show us the fire you showed Moses that changed the way his countenance was, Lord. Show us the glory you showed Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Show us that fire you showed John on Patmos, Lord. I pray for this room this week to be a central location of your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.